Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Suvi Rautio, and on the podcast today, we are joined by Carlos Prado-Fonts, Associate Professor of Chinese Literature, Sinophone Cultures, and Translation Studies at the Universitat Oberta de Catalunya. Carlos will be talking about his new book, Secondhand China, Spain, the East, and the Politics of Translation, which was published just recently in 2022 by Northwestern University Press. As a transcultural study of cultural production, Secondhand China offers a rich account to examine how China was imagined in Spanish literature between 1880 and 1930 by relying on English and French language sources that were translated into Spanish. Through a rich archive of diverse cultural artifacts from popular literature, journalism, and early cinema, Carlos Prado-Fonts shows how the dependence on and obscuring of translation and cross-cultural representations created the illusion of a homogenous West. Prado-Fonts argues that Orientalism became an instrument of hegemony, not only between the West and the rest, but also within the West itself, where Spanish writers used representations of China to connect themselves to Europe, hone a national voice or forward ideas of political and cultural modernity. A timely contribution to understanding of how we create and consume knowledge about the world, Secondhand China is essential reading for scholars and students of Orientalism, post-colonial studies, translation studies, comparative literature, and cultural studies. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Carlos, who I have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Carlos, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to begin um, by asking you about your background and your research interests. What attracted you to studying translation studies focusing on China? Well, um, it's always difficult, at least for me, to (laughs) answer these kind of questions because uh, I suppose at the end of the day, it's a combination of, of Uh, of different things, right? What ends up taking you to a specific topic. Uh, Some of these things are very rational or seem very rational. They give the impression that um, I ended up in this field out of a certain, you know, plan or strategy or something. But some of them are just pure, you know, chance. So it's probably a combination of both. Um, um, I have to say that when I was was a kid uh, and when I was growing up, I was not particularly interested in China or in Asia, but I've always been very interested in languages, Uh, not in learning languages just per se and say like the linguistic skills or, but in how languages can help you learning about, you know, other cultures like histories, places, uh, people and so on. And, And how actually languages can help you think from another point of view, uh, or think in a different way. 
So uh, then I decided to to do my undergraduate studies in translation and interpreting uh, with French and Chinese as major and minor languages. And then, uh, well, I decided that I wanted to learn more about China and, and, and I did my graduate work in, in Chinese and Sinophone literature. And, uh, well, I was, I, I was very fortunate to have uh, great teachers, uh, great advisors, people I really admire, like like um, uh, Sean Golden at uh, the Universidad Autónoma de, de Barcelona, Harriet Evans at the University of Westminster, um, Shumei Shi at UCLA, and and I think they they taught me a lot of things about China and and Sinophone uh, cultures, but perhaps. I think more important than that is that they they taught me how those things about China or, or Sinophone cultures um, could help me understand like broader issues about I don't know about the world or about like class, gender, or politics. Or um, so I think that the kind of like exposure to a non-essentialist idea of China uh, is what I really uh, what I really valued, and and so I decided to to um, try to begin a, an acad- academic career and uh, I consider myself quite privileged to be able to, 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 to remain in it now. And, and, and well, after that, I, uh, my first project was um, um, on, uh, on, the, uh, on Chinese writers who returned to China after having lived abroad uh, in the first half of the 20th century and that, that led me to publish my first book. And then for the second book, I decided to work on this topic that combines China and translation, which are like the two or two of the topics or, or objects of study that have been interesting me, interesting me for, for a long time. I've always found the, the concept of translation quite productive uh, or with a lot of potential to explore uh, all sorts of topics and problems about uh, languages, about the, he- the hegemonies, about how we understand other cultures and and so on. So yeah, that will be my sort of like retroactive understanding of, of, of what I do. Thank you for that. Um, so, you know, as you were talking about your interests and how you how you delved into into your more recent work that come that opens up in secondhand China, uh, you're talking about kind of using China as a, as a lens to understand the world and all the different you know. Um, ways that translators, writers have themselves interpreted um, the country in its vast form and in, in its multiplicity. Um, and that really comes out in Secondhand China. Um, and in the book title itself, Secondhand China, this really captures the main theme and objective of the work. Um, maybe you could tell our audience a bit more about this idea of secondhand and the indirect ways in which China was represented in Spain in the late 19th to early 20th century. Sure. Um, by secondhand China, uh, what I mean is um, a China that has been imagined indirectly through previous representations or, or previous imaginations or previous assumptions or discourses already existing in other languages and cultures. So in the specific case of um, uh, Spain and, and Catalonia, this means that a China that had been imagined through previous discourses on China that had circulated in English or in French mostly, or less often in German. Um, so I should probably clarify um, as well that, that this notion of secondhand or indirectness, um, with this I'm not only focusing on indirect or relay translation, which, um, which is the translation of an already existing translation. And this is 
uh, a very like uh, specific practice in, in translation. So instead of translating a text from A to B, uh, the translation gets done from A to B and then to C, right? Uh, and this is something that, that has been studied and translation studies uh, for a long time. And, and there is a growing interest, interest in it nowadays. Uh, there are more people uh, studying it. Um, but what I'm trying to do in the book is to look at, at, at this phenomenon, at this indirectness in a broader way. So not only at the level of, of languages and, and texts themselves, but also at the level of images and discourses and representations, which uh, appear in, in uh, are present in works identified as translations, but also, and, and perhaps more importantly, in texts that are not translations themselves, like in novels or essays or newspapers or um, political speeches or movies and so on. So... In the book, um, I look at how this indirect way of representing China in Spain um, can be traced back or really began in more intensively in the uh, mid or late 19th century and then evolved during the first decades of, of the 20th century. And, and in fact, this is a phenomenon that, that to a certain extent uh, still exists nowadays. So to give a, a, a specific example, um, it is uh, nowadays, today, it's, it's very hard to find a translation of a Chinese novel or a Sinophone novel into Spanish or, in, or into Catalan that has not been previously uh, translated and published in English or French. Um, so, uh, and the, the translation might be, nowadays it's mostly direct, so it's from Chinese into Spanish or from Chinese into Catalan, but the origin of the project is a previous translation that has been sold and circulated and um, uh, in, in in English or French or in German. So, uh, in the book, I try to trace the origin the origins of this dependence on other languages and cultures to imagine China, um, and, and and that's why I go back to to that chronology. And then, um, of course. Um, we could say that all representations of, of other cultures are indirect to a certain extent, right? Uh, even in, in English or French or German, our our perceptions are always mediated or we always see and imagine and describe other cultures through uh, on the basis of our previous knowledge of them, of, uh, on the basis of already existing representations of things we have read before uh, and so on. So... Um, um, that's true, but what I think uh, it's important in, in the context of um, translating or represent, uh, representing China in Spain or, or, uh, or in Catalonia was that these indirect translations usually try to do something uh, out of their being indirect. And, and that something was usually unrelated to China. So um, uh, um, an example... Um, for that, is, uh, which is quite uh, uh, clear, is um, during the 1920s, uh, many Catalan poets translated Chinese poetry, um, um, and, and they did relay translations because they used uh, um, English or French transla translations. But um, they did that not because they were really interested in China or uh, not because they were engaged uh, uh, in learning more about Chinese culture or uh, whatever, but basically because they wanted to emulate 
British and French poets, and they wanted to become more European. Uh, they wanted to stand closer to, say, like uh, Arthur Whaley or or Ezra Pound, right? Um, so, um, so I think what I'm trying to do through through this notion of secondhand or indirectness is to um, expose or unveil the hidden politics behind these cross cultural exchanges and and try to show how um, what on the surface may look like a binary interaction, say between China and Spain, is in fact a triangular uh, um, relation between China, Spain, and like English or French or German uh, context that that actually involves different concerns and 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 and, and agendas and and I think this this has effects on our thinking and discussing things like world literature or global circulation of cultures. And so that's why I think this notion of indirectness might be uh, fruitful to to think about these broader issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in chapter one, you delve into that in more detail, looking at how um, the discourse on China that originated in these French and British colonial contexts would translate transplanted onto the social imaginary of Spain. Um could you talk a bit more about this social imaginary of Spain? What What do you mean by this context? What you know, if, if you, what what kind of, how can you help us pick paint a picture of this in that in that certain historical context? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, in chapter one, uh, try to show more specifically how this circuit of of indirect representations of China worked. Uh, it's like mechanisms, so to say, and what were the early effects of Thinking about China indirectly in in this way in 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 Spain in the uh, and how China fitted in that in that social imaginary. So um, I go back to the mid and uh, late nineteenth century and and show how the information about China in Spanish newspapers, or illustrated magazines or intellectual works, relied very heavily on texts already existing in English or French. And um, well. The matter, matter of fact is that um, uh, these texts were widely read in Spain or in Catalonia, usually in the original. They were uh, uh, read in English or in French. They were available in social places like like social clubs or bookshops or private libraries. Um, um, copies used to circulate uh, all around. So there was a lot of information uh, and knowledge about China um, uh, in Spain and in the West m- more generally at that time. And in fact, this is something uh, that I show uh, throughout the book in other chapters as well, that there is this trope uh, still existing nowadays about our ignorance uh, due to a lack of knowledge or information about China in the West. But in fact, there was plenty of information about it uh, at the time, uh, available at, at many levels, of course. And, um, and th- this was something common uh, across Europe or, or in the West, uh, in the book, I mentioned like Tolstoy's library, for instance, that included several books on Chinese history or Chinese society and philosophy, and, and most of them were written in English or, or French, right? So um, so what I do in chapter one is show how this um, existing knowledge about China in French or, uh, and British discourses was incorporated to Spanish writings. Um, and especially at that time, um, the main agents to do so, the main agents that, that constructed that, that social imaginary of China were uh, Spanish diplomats who traveled to China and wrote about their experiences. 
um, uh, people like um, uh, Fernando Garrido, uh, Eduardo Todas, Sinibal Damas. So um, Spain did not have a strong diplomatic presence in China, but there were um, uh, a few diplomats working there, and they used to uh, write about their experiences. So about the uh, these operations or this transplanting um, uh, in general, I, I would say it was widely assume uh, that you could use this previous knowledge uh, without having to quote it specifically. Um, so nowadays we are very concerned about quoting properly and referencing our sources and about not committing plagiarism and so on. But at that time it was general practice to use these previous texts. Uh, and for me, one of the clearest examples is, is, um, is an example that was actually um, picked up by Professor Kathleen Davis uh, before uh, um, um, uh, I worked on the book, so I, I can uh, I include it in, in the book. And, and there is a text by this diplomat. Um, uh, his name is Adolfo de Mentaperri. Uh, he was a Spanish diplomat who traveled to China in the late 19th century. And he wrote about his travel as it was you know, very common at the time. Then in his text, he combines his own ideas and impressions with whole chunks of text taken word for word from a previous French account. Uh, so it's basically a copy-paste uh, with with a few changes here and there. Um, what what uh, like a lousy <laughs> a lousy student or a lousy researcher would do nowadays. Uh, and of course, this is an extreme case. But but uh, and and references were usually integrated less, you know, uh, in in a more nuanced way. But but what I think is inter- is interesting is that this was done in a very natural way, unproblematically, everybody knew and, and it was widely accepted. No one really cared. Um, so then what I, what I do in the, uh, in the chapter is also to explore the effects of these operations, uh, of, of, of uh, the effects of transplanting these discourses of China onto the social imaginary of, of Spain. And there are a few of them. Uh, uh, I'll mention um, um, uh, two or three. Um, first, um, there was at the time, um, there was not a specific consciousness about Spain being a, a, a singular or a different nation within the West. So what I call the uh, trialectical relation between China, Spain and other European languages worked naturally and fluently without anyone actually paying attention at this like triangular interaction, right? Um, so it was... China and us Europeans or China and us Westerners. So um, so texts often, almost always refer to Spaniards in China, like Spanish texts often refer to Span- Spaniards in China as uh, we Europeans did this or we Westerners did that. And, and this, I try to argue that this kind of textual or discursive operations contributed in consolidating the idea of Spain being part of a powerful West, even if, ironically, at the time, Spain was an empire about to collapse, or, or technically it collapsed in 1898 with the loss of, of colonies like, like Cuba and, and the Philippines. Um, so, well, ironically, or, or maybe not that ironically, uh, uh, the use of China, uh, you know, um, um, contributed to uh, reinforce the illusion uh, of a, of a um, you know, of a homogeneous West within which Spain was an important part. So that, that, that could be one effect. Another effect was um, 
that these operations established uh, a very tight reliance uh, on English and French languages uh, and sources and, and, and people, agents, to, uh, to talk about China in Spain. So this got to extreme points. Um, um, I found examples of texts about China written in Spain by Spaniards, but who preferred to use English or French pseudonyms, uh, or who decided to use foreign characters or foreign voices uh, to describe China in in in, in the text. So, um, so uh, in in the chapter, for instance, I analyze one of these texts. It's texts that that was published in a uh, magazine in, in, in Barcelona, I think in the year 1900. Um, and it's a text, it's a, it's a series of uh, letters written by a um, presumably like Scottish diplomat uh, writing from China to his wife and to his uh, uh, family. But this was, uh, it was a fake uh, uh, character. It was written by, probably by people uh, at the staff, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, in the, in the magazine uh, editorial staff. And uh, but they 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 thought it was more um, kind of faithful or reliable or uh, it was better to uh, you know write about this as if it was an, a Scottish person right uh, you know describing China right um, and then another effect uh, was that. Um, there was this dependence on translation uh, because all these things uh, took place, uh, you know, all these took place translating things from English or French or sometimes German into Spanish, but at the same time, translation was erased from the operation. So this, um, like this fake um, um, uh, writer, uh, you know, the text included, you know, was the, the text was written using um, 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 information and, and images and sources from from magazines and 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 journals in English or French. Uh, so it was translated into Spanish, but but nowhere uh, it was said that it was a translation. So that illustrates the uh, dependence on translation, but at the same time. You know the uh, the erasure of uh, of translation in these operations. So yeah, more or less, this is what I mean by um, secondhand and 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 indirectness and some of its of its effects. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just wondering. So the purpose of the secondhandness or kind of using using these other pseudonyms who are of a different nationality than than the Spanish um, or or Catalan um, readers. And kind of using these quotes from other from other authors and claiming it their own, this kind of secondhandness, as, as you describe, the purpose behind it, um, if I'm not mistaken, was to show the real truth of China. Is that correct? So that's one of your themes in chapter two, um, looking at the how at the turn of this 20th century there's an overlap between representations of the new and an old, and efforts to seek the truth about China. Um, Again, correct me if, if I'm if I understood if I if I'm if I'm if I'm misunderstood, but um, what was this truth, um, and what were these rep- representations about China um, that that these authors or or all these different sources that you're working with that they were trying to document, and what does it reflect um, in terms of Spain's own geo geopolitical position at the time? So. Um... Yeah, in, in, in chapter two, um, I tried to um, argue that, that around the turn of the 20th century, there are important changes in the way uh, in the West China was perceived in the West in general. And, and this had consequences in Spain in particular. And, and perhaps 
um, as you mentioned, the most important change is a new concern for you know, truth about China or, or to show the real truth about China, things like that. Um, and this um, is in part or mostly is um, a consequence of the emergence of new technologies and how they made China more accessible around the turn of in the late 19th century and, and the uh, early 20th century. So things like the opening of the uh, Suez Canal, which I think was opened in 1869, I guess. Um, so the Suez Canal made it much easier and faster to travel to China. There was photography, there was the telegraph uh, and, and the influence it had on, on press releases and journalism in general. There were more Chinese who uh, visited uh, the West and uh, the other way around, more Westerners visiting or living in China. So in general, all this contributed to a growing awareness that China was not a... Um, like a reality of the past or a classical culture that existed in mostly in books uh, and, and, and a China that had been the object of the sort of anthropological uh, descriptions by diplomats and travelers or missionaries in, in previous centuries. But the China was also a contemporary reality, something that was happening, you know, um, uh, like in real time at the same, you know, it was a, a coexistence or a coeval uh, existence at, at the time. So this had consequences in Spain too. And uh, because as I mentioned in the mid and late 19th centuries, it was assumed that Spain was part of the West. And in, in, in fact, representing China uh, in Spain had been uh, used or instrumentalized to reinforce that idea. Now, um, what I found um around the turn of the uh, 20th century is that um, there are the first uh, references in Spain about the derivative ways of learning about China in Spain. So the triangular or trialectical way that had worked in the, in the past, it, it had worked unnoticed, as I said, um, of, of you know imagining or representing China through other languages and, and other discourses, all of a sudden is made visible and, and turns into a concern for some Spanish diplomats and, and intellectuals. I mentioned in, in the, I, I, I analyze in, in, in the chapter, uh, one, um, the case of one diplomat, Fernando de Anton de Lolmet. He's a diplomat who he lived in China and he wrote about China and um, he mentions how um, he says something like, in Spain, we've been learning about China through other nations' concerns. And we Spaniards, and by, by, by this, he basically addresses diplomats and politicians. So uh, we should um, judge, I think he says something like, we should judge with our own judgment and not borrowing someone else's feet to walk. Um, and this happens in the context of, a, of course, a progressive awareness or self-awareness about Spain's weaker ge geopolitical position in Asia, having lost the Philippines and so on. So then the interesting thing here is that, um, uh, okay, they realize that they should have a more independent view uh, of, of, of China. But in fact, there were no other ways of accessing China for them, since all knowledge about China 
was being mediated by by British and French agents and sources and 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 you know, volumes of knowledge. So uh, through all these mechanisms of translation I, I, I mentioned before. So um, uh, although they were um, more and more aware about the uh, the need of developing uh, um, uh, um, an independent knowledge or access to China, it was actually very difficult to. Uh, uh, to do it, to have an independent, in, in, an independent view, um, um, and, and an independent relation to China. So, um, so going back to to your question, in Spain, the, the the truth about China meant combine these two things. Like on the one hand, um, this knowledge about uh, what was going in China at the time, in real time, about contemporary China, which was something that was shared across the West. And on the other hand, this understanding of China that had to be adjusted to Spanish concerns and, and reality and, and should not be mediated by other nations' agenda, so to say. Thank you, Carlos. This is so fascinating to hear more about the, the kind of material that you've been working on. Um, in Chapter 3, you turn to look at the kind of the images of China that were emerging between the 1910s and mid-1920s. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what was new about these images and how did they affect the ways in which China was being imagined and written about in Spain? Yeah, so um, in chapter three, uh, I look at how the images of China evolved in the 1910s and 20s. And, and I think what was new about the images is that, um, well, there is a, a growing variety of images and, and understandings of China in uh in these decades. So China became much more present in the West and became present in many different ways. And and I have to say that this was one of the most uh, amazing things uh, I found out while working on this project. Um, not only uh, there were news about China or images of China all around, but these images were very diverse. Uh, so yeah, these this two things. Um, so on the one hand, China was very present in, in Western daily lives. And um, in fact, something that I often mention to students is to test this by themselves. Uh, and it's very easy to do. Just go to a Spanish or Catalan newspaper archive. And many of them are now free and available online. And they, they you can go back to uh, like the early uh, 20th century. Uh, like newspapers like like uh, La Vanguardia, for instance, and just type a random date, uh, you know, in 1923, 1927, something like that, uh, and then just pick an issue uh, and browse through that issue. And chances are that um, the international section of the newspaper, um, and in, in Spain at the time, it was usually just one page, like the international page, just one page that with four or five columns. Chances are, I, I don't know, I would say, I mean, I haven't counted that, but like maybe 70% or 80% uh, of the time, there was some information about political events in China. Uh, which at the, at the time, <laughs> China was very chaotic and, and convulsed and there were different, you know, um, uh, political conflicts. And uh, But a general reader in Spain uh, in the 20s had, a, you know, had the, a, a general sense of what was going on there and who were the political leaders and the main, you know, um, uh, arguments and, and, and so on. So China was very present uh, in, in Western daily lives. And then on the other hand, China was very diverse too. Uh, so what, what is fascinating is that the uh, images or the discourses about China at the time were very 
heterogeneous. So before that, in the 19th century or even in previous centuries, since you know um, uh, the first contact with China, that there was this um, there was this polarity, right? These two main discursive um, extremes uh, was there was xenophobia, uh, like the yellow peril and the you know the, the danger that um, you know China uh, um, uh, represented for the rest of the world or whatever, and then Sinophilia, which, which was the opposite, like a, a, an admiration for Chinese uh, culture, the exoticism, and, 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 and so on. But what happens in the 1920s and, and in the 30s is that, um, yeah, basically in the, in the, from the interwar period is that these two basic visions of China coexisted with many other visions uh, or or. or, or or images or ideas, things like compassion, for instance, for um, um, compassion for the Chinese peasantry, for instance, or sympathy for um, um, the arrival of, of, of democracy in, in, in China, the, the Republic of China, or for the communist re- revolution. There was empathy for um, the status of Chinese women as well. There was um, admiration for um, Chinese um, volunteers uh, in the First World War or for a Chinese who came to Spain to uh, join the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War. Um, there was all that. There was China became like a site of uh, a very uh, intense geolo- geopolitical interest as well. Uh, there was also, of course, like co- a commercial attraction, like China being a future market of um several hundred million customers so all this uh, starting uh, started circulating uh and and uh i think um uh i think this was kind of unprecedented uh and um and it's quite striking actually how it contrasts with the current tendency to go back and polarize uh, our views about about well about china and about many other things i guess um so i often think um that, that the images of China that circulated in and were available uh, to my grandparents actually when they were little uh, in the 30s in the late 30s or, or, or uh, something like that uh, these images were actually more diverse and more heterogeneous than the images of China that probably you know will dominate <laughs> uh, when my sons you know um, um, uh, get older right which is quite depressing if you <laughs> stop to think about it. So uh, anyway, so what was new about these images was that, uh, you know, there were many and they were very diverse. And, and another thing I mentioned in the, in the chapter is that these, this diversity of images, they, they started sort of like competing with each other for Westerners' attention. So there was a new kind of, uh, a new economy of representation. Uh, and, and this actually... Uh, takes me to finish um, I think I, I talked more about this in the in, in, in chapter four but uh, on reflecting about how China like the, the, the label or the term China ends up becoming uh, an empty signifier with a, with a ductile signified so China ends up uh, uh, meaning uh, almost everything right there are so many like emotions and 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 and, and concepts and ideas that can be associated with it. So um, and so in Spain, this implied that uh, of course, like Spain's position became also part of this 
economy. And what I do in, 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 in the second part of the chapter is analyze how this is expressed in, in the work of, of three novelists who traveled to China and wrote about it, uh, Vicente Blasco Ibáñez, Federico García Sánchez, and, and Luis de Oteiza. And what I found in their works was quite uh, uh, striking also because I found a, 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 a quite strong racial perception of, of China in Spain, not only um, vis-a-vis uh, the, the, the Chinese population, but also as a way of, of uh, strengthening like the Spanish like subjectivity, so to say. Um, uh, so at, at the same time that there was a more kind of like plural and humane view towards China, uh, um, especially across the West, in Spain there was this like ethnicist or ra- racialist turn that, that was uh, it, it's expressed very uh, prominently in, in this um, in these novels. That's really, really fascinating. And listening to you, I feel like I'm kind of have this historical documentary kind of unfolding, <laughs> unfolding um, in front of me. It's really, really, I mean, I, I love listening about, you know, different events in history and, and learning about it, and especially in the Chinese context, because exactly what you said, there was this window of, of hope and, and, and um, openness and cosmopolitanism that was, that was really, you know, um, emerging from China at the time. And it really is striking if you compare, especially with, as you just said, as the images and the narratives and, and the perceptions of China and Chinese people today. Um, but let's, let's return to the context of your book. So in chapter four, you consider the Catalan context. Um, how were Catalan intellectuals writing about China and what were their motivations in incorporating China into their work? Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, maybe for listeners who may not have this in mind, um, uh, Catalonia is is a nation that was at the time, well, still is, in fact, part of the Spanish state, even if it has its own language and culture and literature and so on. So uh, what I found really interesting about the Catalan representations or the, the representations of China in Catalan language in the 20s and 30s is how different they were from the Spanish ones even if they mostly share the same sources. And I mean, all the, um, this operation I've been uh, mentioning before, uh, you know, it took place exactly in the same way in, in, in both like in, the, in, in, in Catalonia and in the rest of Spain. So basically intellectuals shared the same archive, so to say. Uh, let's imagine a writer uh, or, or an intellectual in Madrid in 1920-something uh, or in 1930 and, and another one in another writer, another intellectual in Barcelona at the same time. So they basically had access to the same books and news and uh, uh, everything about China, but the representations of China turned up uh, quite different. Um, so, um, uh, which which reinforces the uh, this idea I mentioned before about China being like an empty uh, concept being used for different purposes, right? So in the Catalan case, Catalan intellectuals were very eager to incorporate China in their works because um, this put them closer to British and French culture. I think I mentioned this with the case of the poets, but this could be extended more generally in in Catalan intellectual and political life. Uh, Because British and French culture were the cultures they wanted to, you know, uh, emulate and, and be part of. So uh, it was also a way of distancing themselves from Spanish circles. And, um, and what, what's interesting about this 
movement is that um, uh, instead of uh, hiding or concealing the English and French mediation uh, um, in, in the rep representations of China, as it had happened, you know, a few decades earlier, in which you know everybody used uh, uh, English or French sources to write about China, but without actually referring uh, them or quoting them. In the Catalan case, at this time, writers and intellectuals they were very interested in showing or showing off actually <laughs> how they had relied on these British and French uh, um, uh, sources. Uh, there was name dropping here and there all the time, uh, explicit quotations, even full lists of references to, for instance, uh, like the, the the translations into English or French that had been checked in order to prepare a special, you know, a, 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 a Catalan translation of, of a, a set of, of Chinese poems, for instance. So uh, there's this showing off uh, the uh, the mediation of of, of these um, uh, European uh, references, and this I think uh, accelerated or intensified. Another effect that that I explore in in the chapter, uh, which is very evident in the Catalan case, um, which is that uh, the reliance uh, not only on texts in in English or French, uh, but also the reliance on British and French writers uh, um, uh, as mediator mediators to get to know China, uh, that that was considered even better than the actual uh, like the eventual direct access to China. So writers like uh, André, uh, André Marot or, uh, or um, uh, Pearl Buck, um, they became very influential. They embodied China, so to say, and they were praised uh, as like um, uh, even better sources than Chinese sources themselves, <laughs> right? So uh, they were, uh, as uh, uh, one intellectual said, and I think I, I, I have that in the title of the chapter, they were uh, making known uh, making no China as it has not been made known by Chinese writers themselves. So, um, so the indirect access to China uh, became not only the only possible access, but the preferred one. Uh, and this, I think, has a lot of. Uh, it really makes you think about uh, our reliance on, you know. Uh, I mean, you can you can um, uh, replicate these movements, you know, with the Catalan or Spanish access to all sorts of cultures around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So if we move to the conclusion, you conclude your book by focusing on the on ambivalent role played by translation and cross-cultural representations. Um, what kind of knowledge production is required to overcome some of this ambivalence? Yeah, so um, so yeah, by ambivalent role, uh, I mean that um, by the ambivalent role of translation, I mean, I mean that on the one hand, of course, translation is it, it facilitates contacts between languages and cultures, and it's a very, um, um, it's a very um, um, flexible and, and 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 malleable concept. It can be very general. It can be very specific. It appeals to many disciplines. So, it's something that uh, it's very often used, and it's something very usually you know it's thought about as something very positive. But on the other hand. Uh, translation creates many uh, um, um, 
inequalities or creates many illusions as well. The illusion of a direct contact when in fact there is a an, an indirect contact between cultures or the illusion of a of a binary East-West or China-West uh, relation that assumes a somehow homogeneous West, which that in fact does not exist, or the illusion that translation is a neutral uh, mediator between co- uh, contexts and, and cultures uh, and so on. So I'm not sure whether this ambivalence can be overcome uh, since this is part of the, uh, th- this is a, an inherent characteristic of translation. Uh, it, it's part of its very essence, right? Uh, and, and, and scholars like, like Naoki Sakai have, have, have showed this very well. So, um, so we cannot do much about it, uh, and um, and we cannot not translate. I mean, we we have to, we need to translate all the time. We are we are translating all the time. Um, so having said that, uh, I think that at least uh, these ambivalences of translation deserve to be noticed and deserve to be uh, pro- problematized, and and we should be aware of them. And 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 so by this I mean that there should be a more critical understanding of of translation and the politics of translation and all that translation implies, especially when 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 we uh, in discussions about things as I mentioned things like like world literature or global history or transnational circulation and so on, in which I think that sometimes not always but sometimes translation is used very lightly uh, uh, because it facilitates this kind of discussions, but uh, sometimes it deserves like a more uh, critical and, and, and deep uh, understanding of, of, of the effects and all, all, all and the implications. Um, so I, I end the book suggesting that um, if we want to understand, you know, the complexities in the interactions between cultures, not only with China, but, you know, between cultures, around the world we need this critical understanding of translation that 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 pays attention to to this and what i suggest um uh, based on my own experience uh, um, uh researching uh, and writing the book is that uh um we should probably work with um basically larger archives and more languages and and by this uh i mean that we should look um, uh, at the workings of translation, uh, at how translation operates, uh, how uh, of the at what are the effects of translation, what uh, translation um, um, creates in places other than the conven- the, the conventional ones. So uh, the conventional ones would be I don't know, like literary translations, so or, or or translations in more like like conventionally defined areas. Um, and and well, in my book, I, I can give the example uh, of my own uh, experience. Um, if I had only looked at the archive of existing translations between Chinese and Spanish, uh, and during that that period, and this can be either direct translations or relay translations. But I don't know, say like the analects of you know Confucius analects or the Tao Te Ching or anything similar to that. I would probably have concluded that China was barely present in Spanish society, that, that China was really isolated and, and very far from, you know, Spain's uh, everyday life, because there are very, very few tr- translations like that. But when I kind of opened up uh, or when I enlarged the archive and I, and also looked at how China was written about in works other than translations, like novels, essays, articles, news, 
um, uh, well, then I reached the opposite conclusion that, that China was was everywhere. And and the key thing here is that, of course, these other works that were projecting China all the time, in fact, relied on translation <laughs> somehow. They were translations of British or or, or or French sources, but they were not conventional translations. So uh, this is an example of what I mean by by enlarging in, in, enlarging the archive and looking at at. Uh, at other sites or at other um, um, uh, materials, and of course, this is not. Sometimes this is not easy to to do uh, alone or by oneself. Um, and and in my case, I was very lucky to develop this project, this book project, as part of a larger collective project on the interactions between China and Spain. Um, um, so um, there were a few colleagues and and. Um, and, and, and I, we began this project about 10 or 12 years ago. And we are a quite uh, um, heterogeneous group uh, of scholars that are like historians, like economic historians or uh, business, people working on business history and, and diplomatic history, in cultural studies, in literary studies. Um, so um, my part in the project has been to look at the interactions between China and Spain from the perspective of literary and translation. But we have worked on that uh collectively so it's been great for many reasons but one of them is that because uh, is because we have shared uh the archive uh and and this has you know pushed us to um uh have more materials available uh, materials that we would probably have rejected or not found if we had worked on that uh you know uh, on our own so um um that's one of the thing in, in terms of methodology that's another thing that that's i think it's really worth mentioning yeah i mean i think that's really what what is most striking about um about this book and and the, all the material that that it that it builds on is just that it, it is so many voices it is so many different perspectives that you're able to to compile um if i so if I if I've understood correctly, what you're saying is this knowledge production needs to be expanded. It needs to be continuously kind of looked at from from all these different disciplines and and different mm-hmm. understandings of of how to pr- perceive China, how to perceive you know, yes, exactly. whatever material coming from China and different historical events. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, really, I, th- I think that is one of the definitely one of the the most striking points of the book itself. So. Um, listeners will have to have to have to get a copy of the book themselves to kind of delve into to learning about the methodology and 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 kind of all the different sources that you're that you're building on there's fantastic quotes and um kind of in-depth analysis of the quotes themselves and and um which we haven't really delved into um in depth now in this podcast um but Carlos, I've taken up a lot of your time. So before we um, end today's episode, I wanted to ask you about your current projects. Um, what are you working on these days? What have you been? Are you still in this research project? Are you working on um, new um, new threads of history, new ways of looking at literature? What What have you been doing since Secondhand China was published? Yeah, well, uh, well, the book is out, and and yeah, I'm very relieved. <laughs> but uh, as I just said, the book is part of this larger collective project on 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 the interactions between China and Spain in a more general way. So uh, that that is still uh, going on, and for the next months, perhaps maybe uh, the next year as well, uh, we will be working on that. So I'm uh, I'm now helping 
colleagues with with, with their um, uh, their individual projects, and we're also preparing an edited book uh, that kind of like closes the the uh, the project collectively. Um, 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 we are also uh, working on the uh, we have an open um, digital archive which is called uh, Archivo China España it's uh, um, uh, it's an open uh, access archive we are still like feeding uh, that with with more materials um, so that 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 still keeps me uh, uh, a little bit busy uh, and in the meantime I've also been translating and this is something I like to do um, in parallel to my academic writing well, not actually in parallel but I try to from time to time, I try to squeeze uh, a, a translation project, uh, you know, to my my academic writing. Um, I think we we have the uh, we have the duty uh, to to translate, uh, like literary scholars or people working on translation studies. We also have the duty to to translate, uh, even if it's not valued in research assessments or at least in Spain or in Catalonia. But but this is something that we. We have to do um, um, uh, as much as possible, um, and I also like it because I think translating is a completely different kind of um, like intellectual gymnastics, so to say. It requires a different kind of inter- intellectual effort, uh, which I think is uh, it's it, it's very different from the efforts that uh, are required in academic writing or like writing an article or or, or a book, and and I think like both um uh complement it you know they they complement each other very well so uh, uh I, I i like to think that this turns me into like a healthier <laughs> scholar uh and so I, i've been preparing a translation i've been working on a translation into catalan of a french novel uh rene leis by victor segalen uh this is a novel i i came across when i was working on the book and and thought it would be nice to to translate it into catalan language which is my my mother um tongue and uh and yeah that's that's more or less uh, what i've been doing and uh, th- this gradual way of finishing the project is also giving me some some time to start thinking about uh, a new major project uh, so it's very uh, early yet but i think i will end up returning to to chinese and sinophone literatures so um but um yeah i'm i'm not sure i'm not sure right now i will let you know uh, in a while maybe <laughs> um i have to ask is this translation project you're working on is it a second hand um, translation or are you looking directly from no, I, uh, I'm, I'm translating directly from okay. French but uh, it's actually part of uh, um, you know it, it's a novel that it's part of, uh, of of all these you know operations that were taking place it, it's a novel that was uh, written at in, the, in 1913 1914 so um, many of the of the images of China that appear in novel then you know got uh, translated into uh, uh, Spanish or Catalan uh, discourses. So um, yeah, it's um, it's a way of like taking picking up. I mean, for some reason, I, I was not able to include um, any reference of this novel in the book because uh, you know for for you know the, the 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 chronological structure and like the different themes I wanted to highlight. It, it somehow you know I had to um, uh, leave it out and. I really like that novel, and I wanted to do something out of it. Uh, and and I um, I thought that translating it into Catalan was a uh, was an you know it was a fun way. <laughs> it, uh, it was something fun, and also um, it was uh, it's actually a very um, 
sophisticated novel uh, um, or um, uh, you know within its historical context. So I thought it was also interesting to to let Catalan readers know about it. Yeah. That sounds so fascinating. And and as you mentioned, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not a translator myself, but I think it's really refreshing to hear just how fun something it is. And, I, and I'm sure it absolutely, um, again, it aligns with your work, but um, it, it definitely probably enhances um, kind of all, all of the research you're doing and, and um, adds a completely different um, personal layer to, to the analysis um, when you're looking at, at um, material coming from China itself. Um, so I really, and I'm sure the readers themselves really look forward to hearing how this research project kind of um, continues um, and also any of the other work that, that, you, that you return to when you, when you have the time <laughs> after this <laughs> translation. Um, um, so yeah, we'll all be be um, watching out for for what comes next. Um, but now, Carlos, I wanted to thank you for putting your time aside and joining us to talk about your your beautiful book. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Carlos. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um, thank you, everyone who's tuned into the show. This is New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.